every single person, whether you're an individual contributor, whether you are a manager, whether you're a senior leader, it has to begin with you and it has to begin with every interaction that you're having. We are literally designed to be in community. We have individual zones of neurons in our brain that read parts of the face and are interpreting emotion and and trying to figure out what someone is feeling. So what I want people to recognize is that they're always standing in a circumstance of risk, right? But we create certain habits that allow us to feel comfortable. I want us to figure out what are the places that I have high levels of discomfort and how can I sit in a circumstance of risk knowing that I'm going to grow there. This is Inclusion Begins With Me, conversations that matter. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy Pace, Vice President and Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at MetLife. Our podcast examines the pivotal role people play in creating inclusive workplaces that are built for the future. How does inclusion impact our well-being? Why is it a business imperative? In each episode, we weave together storytelling and research-driven conversations with globally recognized authors, experts, and DEI practitioners. On the show, we tackle steps that each of us can take to advance DEI. It's hard to believe that this is our 10th episode of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. In this episode, we'll look back at our first year of Inclusion Begins With Me. I'll share some of our best stories, advice, and insights that we've gotten. But first, I want to tell you why we created our show. At MetLife, Inclusion Begins With Me began with a mission to champion inclusion, strengthen our diversity, and grow our impact at all levels of the organization. When we started, the world was impacted by COVID-19, a fierce pandemic that knows no boundaries and brought with it protracted periods of uncertainty, pain, and loss. Violent acts of racial injustice gave witness to the social, racial, and civil inequities that Blacks and other diverse communities of colors face every day. With input from our colleagues, we explored ways to deepen our connection and understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So together, we embarked on a journey to learn, to listen, and to have conversations that matter. We adopted inclusion dialogues to create safe zones where colleagues could talk and ask previously taboo questions. And through a webinar series, we began to truly hear colleagues' stories, including how racial equity and justice deeply impacted them. While this started internally, Our MetLife community soon asked if we could make these conversations public so that friends and family could also learn from them. 
And this is how the idea of our podcast came to life. Since we launched in March 2022, we've become a global chart topper. Our podcast has been in the top 200 management podcasts in the U.S. and the U.K. as well as other markets, including Japan, Romania, and Lebanon. This season, we've redefined who holds power, talked about connection, and heard personal stories about the value of DEI. We kicked off the show with three fantastic women of color, starting with Daisy Oje Dominguez. I'll tell you this, I was tired and I am tired of short-lived promises. And in my view, a revolution shakes things up. And, and revolutions, the best revolutions are the ones that no one sees coming, right? Mm. They're the ones that have been worked on and built. Daisy is Chief People Officer at Vice Media, and she's leading an inclusion revolution. Our people need to feel that they can bring their whole selves to work. They need to feel respected and understood by colleagues. And so the inclusion revolution is about using your power and experience to disrupt systems of oppression. When we spoke, Daisy told me about joining Vice just a few weeks before George Floyd was murdered. I asked her why we need a revolution. I come from you know a country that had one of the world's worst and longest dictatorship and, and most brutal dictatorships. And so I, I know, I come from a people who revolutionized and who had revolutionary blood. I have revolutionary blood in me. And I think of the revolution that you, you and I have been leading a revolution. It's been a quiet revolution. We've been trying to shift hearts and minds for a long time. And this is the time to call it what it is which is this is the moment to transform organizations and to just do it once and for all, to stop having the one foot here, one foot there, to start doing two steps forward and four steps back, to go forward and revolutionize our organizations, revolutionize our thinking, revolutionize our management principles, revolutionize our behavioral processes, revolutionize our policies, revolutionize everything. Because we are operating in organizations that have been built not with us in mind. Mm -mm. They were not designed for people like us to succeed. And we work with well-intentioned and smart people that don't realize that they are perpetuating systems that were created to keep people like you and I, people of difference, non-binary people, LGBTQ, you name it, anyone who is on the margins and different from the white predominant culture and white standards that professionalism has been set upon to not succeed. Our second guest on the show overcame a predominantly white and male workplace to be the first Indian-American woman and one of the youngest to make partner at Deloitte. For me, power is about liberation. Power is kind of letting go of all the things you've been taught and taught you have to believe and you must do. And you may bring some of them back, but you're actively deciding, what do I believe about myself? What do I believe for myself? What are the things that I've been taught that actually serve me? And how do I rewrite those narratives? On our show, Deepa Prashathamam talked about the cost of power and overworking yourself. She's an advocate for how work impacts our physical health. 
She taught us how women of color can redefine power. I think there's so many things like scarcity that the one seat, these are things that have been ingrained in us. So to your point, I don't think that women are trying to do this to each other. I just think we've been raised with that idea that there is scarcity. But where did that come from? And who told us that has to be how it is? So part of this work is really what I call shedding and caring. It's shedding messages that don't serve you and replacing them with new ones that do. But it's hard. And it's it's not something people are taught to do. And so part of what I'm asking people to do is, don't wait till a moment of crisis, because that's what a lot of the women I met do come to that new realization, do find their power, but it's through a moment of crisis where they've had to really let go of everything. They've had to question their beliefs. They've had to almost reinvent themselves. That's when they find their power. I want more women and more people to find their power earlier, not as a result of crisis, right, or having to redefine themselves. And I think we do that by just sitting down and saying, what are the things we've been taught and why have we been taught those things and asking more questions? So, so many of the women, and again, this applies to all people, I think there's about a dozen messages that we are told early on by our parents usually or by school. You know, you're not enough or you have to work four times as hard as a saying that so many of the Black women told me, right? You're shaking your head like so many of them told me that. You know, a lot of the Asian women I met were taught, like, just keep your head down. You know, don't rock the boat. Like, then you'll be work harder. You'll be rewarded. Some of the Latino women I met were taught, you know, don't raise attention to yourself. Like, attention is a bad thing. And so I'm just giving you a couple of examples, but there's many in the book. And like, do those things really serve us? And like, who taught us that? Because by the way, working four times as hard, I, I hear you. It may it may get you there, but it's also going to kill you in the process. Yeah, it's, it's not, also it's not, yeah. putting you in intensive care. Yeah, exactly. Our third guest in our fantastic trio of women of color was Ruchika Tolshian. She's an author, award-winning journalist, and inclusion strategist, and the perfect person to round out our series. She talked about how every individual needs to contribute to creating a culture of inclusion. The mistake that I've seen made most often, the biggest barrier I would say, is that inclusion needs to happen somewhere out there. There's someone in HR who's going to take care of it. Cindy's going to fix it, right? And it certainly doesn't work like that. Every single person, whether you're an individual contributor, whether you are a manager, whether you're a senior leader, It has to begin with you and it has to begin with every interaction that you're having, right? Whether it's who's my teammates or people being included or not, whether you are in a position of, you know, power where you are hiring or you're promoting or you're making other decisions. So really that, you know, the the personal accountability is probably number one. Number two is amplification. And we talked a little bit about it but really understanding how important it is to constantly restate and give credit again and again to women of color who are so often, you know, made to be invisible in our workplaces. So this can be in a meeting, restating, oh, Cindy had a great idea. I'm so glad she said that. Here's how I'm going to build upon it. But making sure Cindy gets the credit or Ruchika gets the credit. So amplification of women of color putting the idea back to whom it belonged to when you restate it, right? And the third part is around feedback, because I like to talk about the importance of feedback. So Stanford research found, you know, women often got either vague feedback, or especially around this sort of idea of like, um, you know, Cindy's doing a good job, and that's that, or Cindy's not doing too well, and that's that. Not really giving feedback that is actionable the way that 
men often do. For women of color, we also have to navigate biased feedback. Women certainly in general have to, you know, thanks to the gender schema and gender norms and the expectation of being likable but not respected or vice versa. There's that. For women of color, it compounds. So we're then also navigating racial stereotypes. So it's really important if you're in a position where you can give feedback to women of color, you're thoughtful and you are deliberate about the type of feedback that you are giving. Our next three guests, Aaron Hurst, Tara J. Frank, and Dr. Britt Andriata, each gave their own perspective on the topic of connection. Here's Aaron. What we're seeing is the relationships that you have at work are actually the biggest predictor of whether or not you're going to be fulfilled. It's not the work, it's actually your relationships. And I think we've tended to, and again, in all the systems, optimize for task and project and information sharing, but actually meaningful relationships are the thing that like truly matters like way more than anything else. So we did a deep dive just looking at what is the state of relationships in the workplace, Cindy? And couple of things were really interesting. I think one was um, most, well, I shouldn't say most, a very large percentage of the workforce says it's not easy for them to make friends at work. And um, I think a lot of times we think as leaders, like, oh, people know how to make friends. People can make friends. Um, the reality is just like it was in middle school, like it's not easy to make meaningful connections in the workplace. And we broke that down to look at like, what are the things that are really challenging for folks? Um, three of the top things, um, one was, I don't know who to meet, right? So it's the equivalent of like, you're in the uh, cafeteria in junior high school and you're like, I don't know what table I can sit at. I don't know who's going to want to talk to me. I don't want to like be rejected. There's that sort of um, sense of not knowing who to meet, but then also as a second thing, not being comfortable initiating relationships. So people are not, they don't know who to meet with and build relationships and they don't feel comfortable initiating the relationship, right? So again, you can see your junior high school self like in that moment, right? And then they said, even if I do initiate and I build a relationship, I don't have the skills to know how to deepen a relationship. I don't know how to have like a, like a more meaningful, deeper relationship with someone. Like I just don't have those skills. Um, you know, there are other variables that came on top of that. Um, so that was sort of one area of finding. The second one was that people are spending a lot of time trying. They're trying and generally failing, but people are investing in relationships. They're just not finding success because they don't have what they need. They're not set up for success. And then secondly, they said, well, I put a lot more time into this. The average of two and a half more hours a week if I actually like felt like it was it worked. Um, so people are willing to invest more in relationships. Aaron is the founder of Imperative, a peer coaching startup that is helping employees find meaning, and purpose in their work. On the show, he described a trend that shows people crave meaningful relationships at work, but they don't know how to facilitate them. After we spoke with Aaron about the power of connection, we learned about waymaking from Tara J. Frank, who wrote a book on the subject. So simply put, a waymaker is anyone who has a heart to lead who is willing to open doors for other people, especially those who have been cast aside, right, shut out, who is willing to remove barriers intentionally, you know, pointedly, and usher people through to greater levels of contribution. It's a little bit different in my mind and heart than an ally. I think what we mean by allyship is all the right things, but how people are starting to interpret it 
I believe is a little bit passive. You know, I'm supporting you. I'm cheerleading. I'm hoping for the best for you. I look at a way maker as someone who is actively, you know, consistently making a way every step of the game. My favorite part about way making is that you don't have to be a C-suite executive to do it. In this episode, Tara explains that waymakers take time to learn about their co-workers' aspirations. They make introductions and bring talented people who might have otherwise been overlooked into conversations about new opportunities. Every black and brown person I know who's made it to the top of their game, however they define it, has done so not only because of the systems change we talk a lot about, but also because someone made a way for them. Someone made the way, right? And so we need more way makers to do that for more people. We closed out our connection segments by talking about the brain science behind it with Dr. Britt Andreata. So in its simplest form, belonging is that feeling of being part of something and mattering to others. And it's the mattering part that they care about us, that they would notice if we weren't feeling okay. They would notice if we were missing, really feeling like you authentically belong in a community. So we're wired for that. We're wired to need that. We're essentially a tribal species designed to live and work and love other people in community. A lot of our biology is dedicated to that. Britt went on to underscore the importance of inclusion by describing a study that showed that exclusion causes physical pain. The research here was mind-blowing to the scientists, and then it's mind-blowing when you read about it. So some neuroscientists started studying what happens in the brain when someone experiences exclusion. And so they had folks on MRI machines, and they were giving them a mildly excluding experience. You were playing a game of cyberball with a couple other people, And then your iPad was designed to have you feel like, oh, now the two of them are just playing by themselves and you've been left out of the game. Mild. And the scientists did not expect this, but the part of the brain that was lighting up was the pain center. And so they did a whole bunch more studies. They had both like that on the MRI and other things. They had a group of African-American folks be excluded by members of the Ku Klux Klan. So you think, okay, that's not going to matter. That's a community that I don't like or respect, and of course, they're not going to include me, it still lit up pain centers. They had studies where people were talking about previous relationships. They had studies where you were paid to experience exclusion, and it still lit up the pain centers. Our final trio of guests focused on making inclusion personal and simple for individuals and businesses to achieve. They each shared incredibly personal stories about exclusion, using discomfort to advance inclusion, and coming to understand difference. Wade Davis described his personal story of growing up with a speech impediment, playing in the NFL as a gay man, and coming to DEI work following his football career. Way Davis is now the Vice President of Inclusion Strategy for Product at Netflix. The number one thing is your leadership has to make the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion personal to them. Meaning that if I were to come into your workplace, your C-suite plus two needs to be able to articulate why having an inclusive 
having a representative environment makes them better as leaders, makes the people who they engage with better, makes the corporate culture better, and then actually makes the business better. That should be the last answer that that should be given, right? Because if every leader doesn't have their origin story to why inclusion matters, it becomes a nice to have and not a must have, right? Every leader needs to be able to, I should be able to go, huh, walk me through when inclusion became personal or intimate to you. Wade's other important point is there is value in discomfort. So what I want people to recognize is that they're always standing in the circumstance of risk, right? But we create certain habits that allow us to feel comfortable. I want us to figure out what are the places that I have high levels of discomfort and how can I sit in a circumstance of risk knowing that I'm going to grow there, but that I can't check every chair before you sit down in it. As competent as you and I are, as DNI folks, we can't make every chair safe, right? So the question is, what are your real needs? Which is different from, from your wants, right? Like what are the real needs that you might need in order to do your work as great as possible? And what are the places where you are going to have to sit in a little bit of risk because there is no place that ever exists where there's going to be complete comfort. And that goes for all of us, exactly. not, not just our straight white men. That also goes for everyone who, who has other types of identities. Gloria Johnson Cusack and Chris Altizer were the perfect follow-up episode to Wade. They spoke with me about simplifying DEI work and recognizing how earned and unearned advantages affect the workplace. Chris shared how he came to recognize and appreciate the unearned advantages that he has. I mean, think about it. White, male, cisgendered, extroverted, only speak English, huge advantage. Raised with clean water, clean food, public schools. If, Cindy, if I was three inches taller, I'd have it all. I'd have it all. <laughs> And Chris's co-author, Gloria, shared how her story is opposite to his. I was acutely aware of the advantage of others. Didn't have the privilege of doing, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. the air quotes here, of, of being unaware. And it has everything to do with who I am and where I'm from. Gloria described growing up middle class and then becoming working poor, earning a scholarship to an elite private school, discovering her indigenous roots, and eventually going to an Ivy League university. After coming together and learning about their differences, Chris and Gloria decided to write a book. So what we really landed on is that, you know, first privilege isn't working whether they have a lot or a little. So let's talk about advantage instead. And and to be clear for your listeners, the, the unearned is about who you are and where you're from. Things that you had no control of. You just showed up. You got, you were born and you just were you just, a billionaire. You just woke up like that. You just woke up <laughs> and you just run the entire continent and you didn't do right. really anything. And there's room for you. And in fact, maybe even more opportunity for you to expand opportunity for all because you're more likely to sit in a position of power where that can happen. And so we are encouraging, as Chris says, the reflection 
to help one see that and then have the tools to not be paralyzed by, okay, I, I get it, I get it, but what do I do now? Our most recent guests on Inclusion Begins With Me were Dr. Tina Opie and Dr. Beth Livingston. Much like Chris and Gloria, they are co-authors. Tina is black and Beth is white. And while they have a lot of differences between them, they built what they call shared sisterhood. You know, we came into this from different places and with different backgrounds in terms of, you know, the power that's associated with our identities and, and the resources that we had access to. But because we shared that value of equity and because we dug into what was keeping us apart, we're really living this microcosm of the shared sisterhood process that we write about. As a Black person, I'm from a historically marginalized racial ethnic group. And power, we're talking about power, which is access to and control over resources at the group level. And so Beth recognized that because those power dynamics affect how much we might trust each other, how empathetic we might be, how vulnerable, how much risk-taking we want to engage in. And Beth was really good at that. And it's important for people to understand that. It's important for them to understand that you're starting at different places. I had to learn how to trust Beth, and Beth really had to learn. She had to start by empathizing with me. Beth and Tina also left us with a lesson on how to engage equity work at the highest level. The gold standard is the co-conspirator. And that is someone who believes in equity and who acts. But their actions are informed by the voices of people who are in the historically marginalized group that they are striving to help. And this does not mean that they expect the historically marginalized people to educate them. What it means is that they are listening. So if they attend a meeting, an affinity group meeting, or if they're doing that reading, they may be trying to develop authentic connections with people from those groups. And then they can say, you know what? What I have seen as a common theme in these meetings is that an equity audit of salaries would be something that would be really beneficial. Is that true? And they say yes. So then the co-conspirator takes that information. And when he is in spaces or places where the historically marginalized people are not, he speaks up on their behalf. He uses his social capital, his political capital to advance the agenda set by members of the historically marginalized group. And if we can move people from ally to accomplice to co-conspirator, co-conspirators are enacting shared sisterhood. They're doing the work of actually dismantling systemic inequity. I wish we could have a roundtable with each of our guests we've had on the show so far, and maybe someday we will. But for now, you can listen to our full episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Through our show, I hope we're helping you be better informed and have more authentic conversations about DEI. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter, wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you also take time to rate and leave our show a review. We love hearing from our audience about what you've learned from our show and how you're using it to advance DEI.
thank you all for joining me on this special episode of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. And thank you to each of our season one guests for sharing their wisdom and their personal stories that prove inclusion begins with me. We will be back in January to kick off the year with another special recap episode. You'll hear a compilation of sharp insights and action steps our guests have shared on our show. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful holiday season. At MetLife, we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we believe making a difference in the lives of our customers, community, and the world around us is altogether possible. Learn more and join us at MetLife.com. Link is in our show notes. Before we go, we'd like to thank our podcast partner, Human Group Media, who helped us produce this show and this season. That's it for today. I hope you join me next month for another special episode.